ownership. You like it or not? It's got its ups and downs. So my wife and I never owned a house before. We took this job in Jacksonville. We were always renting or something like this. And obviously in Cambridge, we didn't own anything. And for the first two years here in Jacksonville, we rented. And, you know, when you're in your 30s and you have kids, there's just something dehumanizing about having to call somebody who may or may not want to fix your AC Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the Florida summer. You know, you just want to be like, fix it. I got kids. And we rented through an agency where the homeowner would hand the keys over to the agency. And that like just added more red tape. So they had to call the owner. They had to spec it out three times. This actually happened to us. The AC broke in like June. So we went to a hotel for like two nights. Wow. Which, you know, you're just like, ugh. We had a baby, all that stuff. So there's a lot of perks that come with owning your own house. If something needs to be fixed, you can fix it. But (laughs) the other thing is if something needs to be fixed, you have to fix it. It's on you. It's a challenge unto itself. You know, I'm in this self-help book reading mode. So I've been reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Have you heard about that book that was popular? I've seen it. Yeah, it's pretty popular. Yeah, it's a little corny in some ways, but it's a little provocative. And one of the things he says is, don't think of your house as an asset. Think of Mm. it as a liability. True. Basically, that because it's going to cost you money to keep it going, you're never going to get out of it. I shouldn't say never. You most likely won't get what you put into it. Yeah. So and unless you're in a you know hot area of real estate and you're lucky, but for most people, it, it, he's not saying don't buy the house. Just don't think you're you're going to be able to all of a sudden make all this money. And the interesting bit is he wrote it before the recent financial collapse. So it's kind of like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and right. certainly for us in a small town rural America, we fix things up. But who knows if we ever wanted to sell. Well, we've talked about this a bit at Gordon-Conwell. We've been on this faith work, faith marketplace kick as a faculty. So at our retreats and things, we talk about this. And sometimes we have guests come in. And it was interesting about that because that was one of the things a few years ago was, you know, the old model was you more or less pay for a house that you can afford 30 40% is down. I mean, it, it, these, these things were not all that uncommon in mm-hmm. the 40s and 50s. You were then supposed to live in it <laughs> for most of your life. And just the old idea was by the nature of inflation and value, things should go at least up. You know, we've all heard these stories of grandparents buying a house for $20,000 and they sell it for $500,000 yes. or something like this. And that's pretty abnormal. But now, of course, with the house flipping and all these ideas that you're just going to make quick cash, it got really out over at skis, the guy was saying. And so that's why we got into subprime buying houses we can't afford for the idea that it's all going to go up, up, up. And that's just not really the case. Mm-hmm. We were fortunate. We actually landed in, in a hot spot. So it's the fastest growing county in Florida. It's the values go up. It's the school system that drives a lot of that. The schools are really good. And the school systems around it and neighboring counties are not always that great. If not, sometimes they're bad. And very abnormally, we bought a brand new house. Hmm. We didn't buy a lived-in house. So there were some definite advantages of that. And some disadvantages. The disadvantages were there was nothing in the house. There were no window fixtures, no light fixtures. We bought a raw house. So we had to plunk down some capital to to make it livable. Unless we want the neighbors to see us (laughs) walking around with no blinds or something, which would be weird. Hello, sailor. Hey. Just just stand in the window with my coffee and my jammies waving. That's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Oh, no, he's up again. Ah. Hide, kids. But the other thing was, is, you know, I had friends who bought houses that are 10 years old and suddenly everything breaks. Yeah. You know, the AC breaks at the 10 year warranty and the new roof needs to be in. And- Why did you need to do your AC then? 
No, uh, just a friend, like friends have had that happen. But what about when you moved to the hotel, you said? Oh, that was when we were renting. Gotcha. That was the old. That was, the old. That was before. Yeah. So we have not had the normal experience owning a house because it was new and all these things. But you're right. I mean, even, even with all that taken into account, let's say it does go way up. I mean, come on. To get that back out, I, I heard someone say one time, if you have a house that appreciates a lot in value, it's still not your money. It's not an asset. It's in the walls. You can't really get it out right. if you have a crisis or something. And to sell the house, you're still going to have to live somewhere. So you're going to have to either buy another house, a cheaper house, or rent or do something else. So yeah, seeing it as a substantial value that is your pocketed money. It's like the same thing with your car. Yeah, he says that too. A car is not an asset, but a liability. It's worth something, but you're never going to get back what you think it's worth unless it's a collectible car or something. I mean, there's the Kelly Blue Book, but it's going to be hard to find someone to give you that. And they're going to say, oh, well, your fender is bent. Right. Or you sell it to a car dealership and they can't give you Kelly Blue Book because they've got to make a profit. So, yeah. You, Ew, what's that smell? Ew, yeah. Oh, you had a dog. So Here's five bucks. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> they'll give you something, but it's not an investment vehicle. Ha ha. Yeah, but uh, exactly. yeah, houses are interesting. You get that mortgage interest deduction off your taxes, and that's a huge handout by the government when you think about it. But no one can take it away because people love it. But you can deduct that just off the top of your taxes. So that's a real bonus to home ownership. But yeah, you, you end up fixing things. So, you know, the roof was $8,000. But it's not like if I wanted to sell my house, I could say, well, I paid this amount. It doesn't work that way. Right. The way you sell it is, well, what will the market pay for it? And it may be a lot less. And so you either find a buyer for that or you lower it or you just wait it out. But it's a very strange thing. It's very emotional. You feel like this is a great house. And cars are the same way. You feel like, oh, this is a great car and I, I just changed the tires. Yeah. But the buyer's like, I don't care. Yeah. It has a name. I call my car Sally. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I spent 10 hours putting my own stereo in and all that. And they're like, well, that's great. Which probably lowers the value. Of this, yeah. <laughs> it's got the scuff marks from the yeah. putty knife. The wires are all sticking out. Right. So, yeah, they just see things very differently. But it's interesting, though, about owning it because we were renting houses before we bought this one. And I want to say it's almost a human condition. I didn't really care about the house. Even if I thought I was going to live there for years, I mowed the grass just as fast as possible only when I maybe had time. I certainly didn't put down any fertilizer. Mm. You know, I didn't, I didn't care about the paint job or the quality of the appliances or fixtures. I just wanted it to kind of endure <laughs> for as long as I was sure. there. And I'd only invest if it was something I really wanted or needed. It's a strange thing, though, when you own it, even though the bank owns 98% of it <laughs> or mm -hmm. something, you're still like, that's my house. So I cared about the color that I was going to paint the walls. And I cared about making sure that I take care of the yard and I'm not a maniac about it, but there's this instinct to own it. That's mine. Yeah. I, I live there. And all of a sudden you care. And it wasn't based on some weird social pressure like the Truman Show to have like perfect house next to people or to be better than anybody. I don't care about any of that. But it was just like, this is my house. We're going to pick colors for the kids' rooms that are fun, that they like. And, you know, we just went the extra mile because there's this sense of ownership, which obviously you're not going to have when you rent. And the other thing Charlotte and I did was we, we made very sure at least we, we talked about it up front, that we want to make sure if we buy a house, we want to buy a house that we could see ourselves retiring in. Right. That may not be the case. We may move, whatever it might be. But we wanted that to at least be on the table as a possibility versus the, well, you know, I got a couple of years on me. I'm going to buy a house, you know, I'll just live there. Yeah, and then we'll flip it and move into something different. One of the things they don't tell you until you're really a real adult 
is that furniture doesn't move well. Like you can move it, but it doesn't fit in the next room. Like, you know, you buy that dining room table for a certain room and then your next house, it's going to be too little or too big. So once you, you know, basically moving is a sucker's game. Once you've established, you're kind of like, well... We've got all this. I mean, this lazy boy suite just really doesn't work. It doesn't work. work. Yeah. The leatherette (laughs) just doesn't go with the the chandelier in there. Where's my cooler going to go next to the couch? Oh, it's so crazy. But I I do love projects around the house. I I think I get it from my mom. I love throwing things away. I love, not personally, but, you know, this idea of what's the next thing we're going to do? Well, we're going to change out this light fixture or we're going to change the deck. So I get an odd pleasure out of improving things. Which probably you wouldn't have if you didn't own it. You wouldn't. So I'm going to basically, in 30 years, be that old guy that wants to talk about all the stuff he did to his house. You know, they're like, 2006, I put in that fixture. <laughs> and it? Why is it hanging by a thread? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. But at 20% energy savings. Yeah, it's, it's a surreal experience. But it's hard to rent here in Stanley County. I mean, you can, but housing is pretty inexpensive. So it's kind of hard to find things in some ways. Yeah, I think that's, I, I probably always go glass half full with stuff like this. So if I read, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I would probably have a crisis of conscience. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, why do we buy? But, you know, I have colleagues in Boston, quite a number of them. A lot of them live in an area that is one of the most expensive parts of Boston. There are ways that they can buy a house, but, you know, some of them have come down and visited this kind of thing. And they've just been honest. They just said, Ryan, your house in our area of Boston would be half a million dollars. I hear or that. Something more, yeah. You know. And you're just going, oh, wow. I, I, so I count my blessings that I'm in an area where we could have not just rooms for the kids and my wife and I, but a home office, a little extra space mm-hmm. here and there, a garage, that kind of stuff. But maybe it's because I know so little about finance. I, I never really saw a house as an asset. I just saw it as a place to raise my kids yeah. or a place to, to retire. Well, And that's what Rich Dad, Poor Dad is. He's not saying don't own a house, but for many Americans, that's their major asset is their home. And that's why the uh, recent financial crisis was so devastating because people had put a lot of money in their home and they had gotten those home equity loans based on the value of their house. And all of a sudden, oh. you know, all, it had gone down in value and, and people were freaking out. So the main thing of Rich Dad, Poor Dad is thinking about income generating assets, be they stocks or you're flipping houses or you own apartments, but assets that'll make you money so you don't have to work versus thinking, I'm going to work my whole life and buy a house. And then you wonder why at a certain age you can't retire. So that, that's yeah, his main right. thing is financial literacy. And so for him, a real asset makes money versus what we think of as asset is, well, I own this and I could sell it, but you're really not going to get yeah. that much for it. So functionally, that's like having a baseball card collection yes. that you think is worth a lot of money, <laughs> but nobody it wants is. to buy it. And then if you need the money, they're not going to really give you what it's worth because they know you, you, you have to sell. Once you have to sell, you're in trouble. It's a Babe Ruth card. I don't yeah, care. I don't care. If you want the money, here's some money. Have you seen that old movie, The Ninth Gate, Johnny Depp? No. It's on Hulu. I watched it three weeks ago or so. Roman Polanski, I think, directed it. Okay. It did Rosemary's Baby. But it's kind of cool. Johnny Depp's a book reseller. So he goes in and prices people's antique book collections. Oh, and wow. So it's kind of interesting to see. And it's pre-internet. I think it's from the mid-90s, later 90s. But anyway, it's a fun little movie. There's these medieval books that, uh, well, it starts out about that, but it ends up that there is an ancient book that this guy wrote with the devil. Okay, I was going to say, there has to be yeah, a plot, there's a twist, plot in there twist somewhere. And there's four copies in existence. And he realizes each one is a little different. 
And by knowing the differences, you can actually kind of summon the devil. So it's kind of, it's all about books and collecting, and but they're killing each other over it. It sounds a bit like It da is a bit Da Vinci Code, but, uh, yeah. You know. So they're trying to get this folio, and then somebody gets stabbed. So it's like books and killing. Okay. It's pretty fun. That, that sounds a lot better than, <laughs> well, this book is $4. Exactly. <laughs> sort of like Antiques Roadshow with Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> this book is worth $16,000. Honey, this movie's crappy. Uh, sorry, I just heard it was good from Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's the, devil. there's the devil. Oh, that guy got stabbed. Right. Cool. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, that's good fun. So houses, you were saying before we went live here that houses are kind of like houses of faith and houses of theology and denominations. So one of the topics we had was to think about the different strands of the Christian faith and, and what their gift is. And so what would you say the gift of Calvinism, the Reformed tradition, and its house. How, how do you think that contributes something unique to Christianity? I always start because you and I both have contexts where our students are from different denominational backgrounds, a lot of stuff. And so we've talked about this before. We're usually translating. Okay, you don't know what these folks are like, but let me help you understand them better. There's a couple of things. I always start by saying, you know, you have to get them right. One of the challenges of talking about Calvinism or this reform thing is there's so many caricatures, the scarlet letter, the kind of puritanical right. sense. H.L. Mencken, his definition of Puritan is the fear that someone somewhere is happy. That's a paraphrase. You know, that kind of a thing. And you got to throw those out. Those are historical inaccuracies. So when you get down to it, the gift of it is, I think, when I teach it, I tend to say that the Reformed faith, it's the gas in the tank that makes it drive is they have a zeal for purity. That's why we get the word Puritan and things like that. And what I end up teaching is I say, look, this could have a double-edged side to it. So a zeal for purity could, and it has at times over the centuries, led to a real kind of grumpy spirit about, you know, oh, you're not doing it right, and let me correct everybody. And But at its best, it's just saying, let's not just assume that what we're doing is beneficial, worthwhile, effective and biblical. Mm. So at its best, in the history of the study of biblical languages, so the discovery of the language Aramaic at the University of Cambridge, this happened in the 16th century. It was a reformed person, a professor there. He was a Jewish man who had converted to the Christian faith. And he just said, you know what, biblical languages are really important. And for a long time, the assumption was that Aramaic was just some dialect of Hebrew. They didn't know what huh. it was. No one had ever studied it. And he discovers, no, this is a different language. But he only got there because he says, you know what? Studying languages to this level is important. And I use that as an analogy a lot where I say, you know, at its best, they're saying, let's just not use the tired old slogans and phrases from the past. Let's always drive down each generation to this why question. Why are we doing this in, in worship? Why are we doing this in our churches? So at its best, it's almost a refining fire. And it actually starts that way. And I think that's why it's part of its culture. So Luther comes out of the Reformation, and he has lots of opinions. And a lot of these Reformed guys, Calvinist guys, are very much influenced by him. I mean, some of them were converted by his books, or in the case of Bootser, directly. They heard Luther speak, and they're like, all right, I'm proud of wow. him. And so they always had this deep appreciation for him, but they always said, you know what? I'm not sure about all of his conclusions. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of a critique quietly in some cases of some of those positions. And so from its beginning, it always says, look, we're going to appreciate all kinds of things, but we're not just going to take a confession or a set of documents from Luther alone or from the Anglican church alone. 
And you have this kind of explosion of different attempts to get it right. I mean, if you just look, count the confessional numbers, the number of confessions, rather. You have four or five, maybe seven in the Lutheran tradition. You have three or four in the Anglican tradition. You have, in the first hundred years, something like 75 confessions wow. coming out of the Reformed tradition. And they're not trying to one-up each other. They're really not combative against each other. But there's always this sense of, well, can we say it better? <laughs> can, we, hmm. can we make it more accessible to the laity? Can we translate this better? How, do we, how are we going to describe this? And for a lot of its history, Calvinism or the Reformed side has been great at hustling to translate and to speak it in the common language, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Not always. There's, there's, there's times where it seems to be kind of esoteric and abstract. But Calvin became Calvin. I mean, there became this thing in the English language called Calvinism because they hustled to translate the Institutes into English for the people of England. So that's kind of a nutshell of it. There's this hustling to translate, to clarify, to purify. And I always tend to say a theological strength has a theological weakness built in if it's done too much. And at their best, though, they're saying, let's rethink everything. Let's always make sure we're, we're doing, we're being purposeful about the things we believe. That if there's a doctrine we don't understand, well, let's think about it some more. Let's not just go with our gut. So how do you see it, though? I mean, as, as someone who comes from the Methodist tradition, what's been your experience? I'm sure there's been, you know, some jokes at Calvinist expense. Yeah, you know, Calvin becomes a real straw man for Methodists or, or even evangelicals and other uh, Protestant faiths that uh, Calvinism seems this cruel thing that, that God has decided who's going to heaven and hell. So a lot of times that's kind of... Uh, there's the rah-rah, well, Wesley held a prevenient grace. Methodists love that. They love grace, the prevenient grace, justifying grace, and the idea that we are free and, and that Jesus died for all. Sort of very mm -hmm. kind of, that's that revivalist stream, I think, of Methodism that really wants to, in the sense of it, it's up to us to respond as God invites us. And so they're real quick to say Calvinism is so bad because it, you know, it, it says, it seems antithetical to what Methodism thinks of it to itself today. So I always like to kind of introduce it by saying, if you really believe in salvation by faith alone, if you are against works righteousness, then Calvinism is the logical result of those premises. Because even if you say, well, you have to accept Jesus into your heart, well, that's kind of an action. That's a work. Or if you believe, yeah. well, you have to respond to grace, well, you're not completely saved by grace then, but just think if, if your salvation is truly in a lockbox or even, I've used mm -hmm. the analogy of the black box in the, uh, the airplane. Like, like mm. you know, it, it, it's, it's at the bottom of the ocean. There's nothing you can do. And all of a sudden, your sense of salvation changes. Yeah. And, and the classic Presbyterian response is saying in grateful response to what God has done. So you do it because you want to, not because you feel like you have to. So I try to frame it somehow like that, and I can see people start thinking like, huh, that, that's a kinder version of Calvinism. And they yeah. really do want to say we're saved by faith alone, but then there's a lot of ideas that they really have about what we do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think th there's a couple of things historically that changed after Calvin. One was, uh, we talked about this before, you know, this reform thing gets boiled down to five tulip mm -hmm. points which to me is is a strange thing. I, I don't, that's not a historical reality. You know, five points is, is not a livable faith. It's five positions against alternative positions, but that's not your faith. <laughs> that's five positions. And so that's one. And I'm, I'm ready to admit, 
I think Calvinists sometimes lead with predestination, which wasn't the early impulse. Right. You know, you don't see Calvin saying, in the beginning, God predestined. Let me talk about predestination in the Institutes only, and then we'll get on to the rest of it. You know, and I think at times, not always, but at times, people have led with that, mainly in particular after the Wesleyan revivals got going, because it became the defining difference. And they had to clarify that difference. And, you know, you hear all types of excessive stories of folks that all they want to talk about is predestination. Interestingly enough, Calvin actually urged some caution on it. Now, when he talks about it, he'll talk about it without any kind of hand-wringing. But Bruce Gordon's biography of Calvin does this pretty well. Melanchthon had written his commentary on Romans, and he commented that there's a challenge to how we, how or when you ever bring this doctrine up because, he says, if you look at Romans, Paul doesn't bring it up in a logical order. He brings up sin, which is obviously not the first part of Genesis. He then goes to grace and freedom, and Christ has done it all. Then the chapters eight and nine about not by your works, not by your choice comes up. And Melanchthon brings up this question of, do we take the Pauline rhetorical strategy of predestination language is a buttress against I chose this, it's all on me, which seems to be how Romans is using it. Or do you use it more systematically, which you would bring it up logically prior to post-conversion? And Calvin was seemed to be kind of challenged by that. And he started shuffling things around and, and, and trying to work out a way to harmonize that problem. Is it systematics or is there a almost homiletical way of getting at the problem? Mm-hmm. But, you know, successors, the, 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 the hyper-Calvinists along the way and the anti-Methodist stream with the Puritan piece led to a lot of overemphasis of a doctrine that wasn't the be-all and end-all of the Reformed tradition for its heritage. You know, we're not going back. People still like to argue about it. It's, I think I, that in maybe evolution or something, those are like the two most debated doctrines in my 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 history. Huh. I, mean, I mean, laymen that, that could care less about half of anything, you know, related to their faith. Maybe they're cultural Christians. This is being college. You bring up Calvin and Calvinism or predestination. It's like, oh, I've got nine points to, to respond <laughs> to you on this. And there's something There's something in the bloodstream I can't quite put my finger on because I wasn't a cultural Christian as a young guy. I'm just going, I don't know what incites the fight so vigorously. But I think your point is probably where I'd go is it seems to make God a tyrant. It's it, There's something visceral mm-hmm. about, no, whatever, whatever you're saying, I don't, maybe I don't fully understand it, but it sounds like you're making God the author of evil. Yeah. And that, that just sounds pretty horrible. Yeah, I, I wonder if it presses on some buttons for us as people living as heirs of the Enlightenment that we value individualism and freedom so much. And then as Americans, too, we, we think of freedom as such a highly valued thing. But Calvinism kind of seems unpalatable to many because it would deny what we see as, as our freedom to, to choose religion and to choose church. And we're so comfortable being in charge. And the idea that mm. somehow God might be sovereign just seems kind of mean because we, we see God as an enabler. We don't see God as a monarch exactly. Well, it's true, which is strange because all the language that comes out of the Bible is king, you know, I mean, not all, but, you know, one of the main themes, kingdom of God, king, God is king. Yeah. Now, is he using tyrannical monarchy imagery? No, of course not. But I did have a professor who used to say, you don't tug on Superman's cape at some point <laughs> in the Bible. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't push on him, right. you know, and or another old preacher's line, you know, the the quickest way to get God to laugh is to tell him your plans for your life. Right, <laughs> you yes. Know, this, this kind of, uh, you know, but yeah, I think you're right. I think there's an enlightenment piece there 
Owen Hatch, I think is his name, out of Wake Forest. Nathan Hatch. Nathan Hatch. Yeah, Nathan O. Hatch, that's what it is. He's got a great book called The Democratization of the Church about American Christianity. And it's, it's, it kind of speaks to that. He, he, there's something about the transition from the old world to the new where the traditions that are going to be the dominant voice, and frankly, it's Methodist and Baptist for about 250 years up until the Pentecostal movement. The, the, but the dominant voices are going to be ones that actualize freedom and choice, not just theologically, but even structurally. You know, my, one of my Methodist friends here locally says, you know, uh, the Methodist church is structurally sometimes we have a meeting to declare that we're going to have a meeting to decide when we're going to have the meeting about yeah, the meeting. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> about right. And what he means by that, he, he started to explain it, is there's a fear, a good fear, that no one gets left behind in the communication. Hmm that everyone knows what's coming and knows when the meeting is and knows to show up if they have something to say. And Hatch just sort of says, this becomes a defining thing of American evangelicalism. Think of the Baptist polity, you know, the, the, congregational, mm -hmm. the congregation votes for what they want, that kind of a thing. And back in the old world, I'm sorry, <laughs> the patriarchs, the elders, they would determine yeah. what was going to happen. And that didn't always, that was not always as palatable. Yeah. And part of it's just this historical assumption that people assume that there were the good old days, but it's always been like it is now. Uh, they, they just assume yeah. that, that people voted and you have to say, well, no, people didn't used to vote. And politically it was white landowning males that voted. So it wasn't even all white males. Mm. It wasn't, uh, and it's a, trying to get them to, to understand the historical changes that going back far enough Puritanism, uh, Calvinism was the dominant theology in America and in large bits of Europe. Yeah. So it's not like it was a sideshow or, or some kind of stream of thought. It's, it's been there from the start. And it's, I shouldn't, I'm, I shouldn't say from the start. It's since the Reformation, it, it has had a yeah, loud yeah, voice. Go. And it's, it was very present here in America up until, like you're saying, with evangelicalism and I guess the, the Second Great Awakening and, and those shifts yeah. and all of a sudden Methodists and Baptists are, are much more dominant. But um, it would evolve an Anglican here in, in North Carolina and trying to get them to understand that, that, that the Baptists and others are, are, are new forces, relatively speaking. Yeah, that's right. Well, one of the things I do say, going back to the question of how is it a gift, the Reformed or Calvinist stream, one of the ways I put it, maybe a bit cheekily, uh, to use the British phrase, is I say the Reformed or the Calvinist folks are the most promiscuous tradition coming out of the Reformation. Huh. Lutheran and Anglican identity, for example, and Anabaptist identity, very much, they're not seeking allies that look different from them very often. Not as easily. I would say you can't think of a Lutheran who just happens to also be adult baptism and Zwinglian on the sacraments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, that, that's, that doesn't work. If you're a Lutheran, you have a Lutheran view of infant baptism and the sacraments. Anglicanism has had a broad conception of itself the via media stuff, but it, it, it's not necessarily seeking lots of allies. Whereas you look at this reform thing, they're like, okay, French, okay, fine. You're, you look different from us, but we'll partner with you. Okay, Presbyterians in Scotland, fine. Pure in England, fine. I never it, thought of that. They, they, yeah. Part of it's their political and their cultural weakness. They're just from the Alps of the Swiss regions, and they're politically pretty weak. But I think you just get to the historical theological side. They also know when the essentials are the important thing and when, for example, the Anglicans have a, a bishopric system. Well, that doesn't bother them for a long, long time. They're, they're willing to make allies. And a lot of them go up and work with Cranmer on the Book of hmm. Common Prayer, that kind of stuff. And there's this beautiful thing also in that Bruce Gordon biography of Calvin, where Calvin is the last, one of the last, if not the last person, to still be sending letters to Wittenberg and 
calling for a dialogue and a friendship. Now, Melanchthon is responding a little bit, but there are times where it's just crickets. Wow. You know, he's just like, hey, guys, hey, here's a letter. What do you think about this? And it's like, nothing. <laughs> you know, they, they're just done with the Swiss guys. And there's the sense that they're always reaching out, always, at least in the, the initial 150 years, they're always trying to do that. Later on, of course, uh, it, when you get to like Puritan New England, once they have authority and control, then they, 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 they tighten down a little bit more. But, you know, there's something in that. You know, there's the sense of, okay, you don't have to be exactly like me, but they want the reform thing or the Calvinist thing to be an influencer, even if they're not the dominant hmm. voice. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it has something to do with the lack of bishops, too, that there's wonder, a la- yeah. lack of structure. And that's another gift of Calvinism is, is that polity, which is that, I, I don't know what the, or I guess it's from the word politics, but it's the word just for church organization. Yeah, so that's it, um, right. Yeah. It, it throws people, if you all know that word. Yeah, it's just a voluntary uh, organization of yourself. Yeah. That's right. We've actually got a thing for one of our classes, the uh, marketing department uh, made it policy. Instead, it's Methodist history, doctrine, oh, yeah. and policy. Because they didn't recognize the word polity. That's uh, as my my pastor likes to say. That's insider baseball. Yeah, it really is you know, insider that's... baseball. Um, so yeah, the, the polity of of the reform tradition of having local elders and maybe deacons and the pastor is a teaching elder. I mean, that's influenced so many Baptists and, and non denominational churches. Mm-hmm. Not having a bishop, not having a structure. I mean, I guess Calvin had the presbyteries. Or I don't, I don't know when the Presbyteries really enter in. No, but. Calvin didn't do Presbyteries. Calvin's was a single city. Single city. That's it's very weird, yeah, because everyone thinks it's Presbyterian because there's something like a synod, but it's just the city. Mm. Uh, they're, not, they're not franchising. They're not franchising the, the, out. Yeah. And so it's Knox who takes it up to the Presbyterian, like, national synod huh. level, really runs with it. But, you know, I think even deeper, maybe a way to put it is, at their best over the last 450 years, the, the Calvinists want to be a theology of persuasion. Again, at their best, there's always exceptions to this and counter examples of bad times. But they're at their best when they're the weakest minority, hmm. but, they're try- but they're not being persecuted and they're able to try to convince other people of why their positions are not wrong. Think of England and during Elizabeth or, or King James, other places like that, other times like that. When they gain power and they can kind of control things, say, again, pure New England, then it does tend to get a, a little off its rocker. I think any tradition will do that, by the way. They're not immune to it. Yeah, it's power. I think that's true. When they're at their weakest, and again, right from the beginning, Zwingli gets killed within 10 years of him starting this reformed tradition. He gets killed in a battle. The Catholic neighboring city comes and attacks. And from that point on, there is this sense of, we've got to convince people that we're wrong, or that we're right, that we're, mm-hmm. that, that we're not this, these, these monsters. Calvin, you know, beginning of the Institutes, writes this letter to the king of France. There's this persuasion culture. I think because it's not historically had power and influence in its first generations, and then at times when it gets the power, like in Dort and in the Netherlands at times, it it can go a little autocratic. But again, they're not the only ones that do that. No, I think any group does that given time and opportunity. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in other ways to say it is reformed as an adjective. You know, Calvinist as an adjective. You can Calvinist Baptist, Calvinist this, Calvinist that, you know. There was even a weird time, believe it or not, where the Eastern Orthodox were flirting with the idea that their theology was synonymous with the Reformed sort of Calvinistic faith. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with Calvin's view of union with Christ. It it seems to have connection potentially with the idea of theosis. And it was centuries ago. Uh 
But there was a big council that met and said, no, <laughs> shut up. Don't say this. Don't make this connection between us and these schismatic Calvinists. Interesting. And, of course, we have that in, in the Catholic Church with the Jansenists and those. That's so, right. um, yeah, Calvinism present in lots of areas. There are Calvinist Methodists, Whitfield, yeah, and some exactly. others were you know, could be considered Calvinist, Methodist, uh, there's, there's a logic to... Which, uh, which I love to teach because it sounds so oxymoronic. It sounds, it sounds strange. Like, it was a Calvinist yeah. Methodist, huh? Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, there, it's good you mentioned the adjective because there's Calvin, there's Calvinism, there's Calvinist, and there's all sorts of different permutations of it. And Wesley himself said that he was only a hair's breadth away from Calvin. So Wesley liked Calvin yeah. and considered himself close to Calvin's theology, but he did not like the Calvinism of his day, which seemed to just allow for people to be lazy. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to hell, yeah. so. Which is interesting. Yeah, because that's the same thing with Arminius. I use the analogy of, what was the movie, Scream? You know, he's coming from within the house. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing. Arminius was a Calvinist. He went down and studied in Geneva. That's where he did his, you might say, that he had seminary training. And when he went back to the Netherlands, he actually has, we have, I think we still have the letter somewhere in an archive, Beza. Calvin's successor wrote a letter of recommendation for Arminius to go back and be an approved pastor because he was so great. Wow. And he's just going, oh, which is part of the reason why early Arminianism is, is so combative and combated against within Reformed theology is he was one of them. But like Wesley, you get the sense that he's reacting to those who've gone too far with some of the language or the rhetoric you know, there's a William Perkins book called The Order and Mode of Predestination. I mean, it's, it's a long book. And he's looking at this going, why did this one doctrine become this one? You almost think that you have God's inner thought process about why he's doing things. As, as I always say to my students, the Calvinist idea or the, the even the Augustinian idea of predestination is just God moves first. Mm -hmm. You got to work out what that means. But that's the impulse. Huh, uh -huh. I didn't say myself. Yeah. God moved first. Again, there's all kinds of questions of causality and will and things, obviously, that have to be worked out. But that's where it starts. And that's not a bad impulse, as you were saying earlier. No. God moved on. He loved me first. That's certainly a biblical principle. Yeah. No, it's throughout the Bible. People are chosen. Moses, Abraham. I mean, they don't just sign up. They're just called. So God moves first. Paul didn't really go, well, let me think right, about exactly. it. Right, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of the sense of, yeah, he got, he got pulled. Yeah. Huh. Well, good. Cheers to Calvinism and Calvin. And looking forward to talking about some of the other theological houses. Uh -oh.